All right, so let's begin with the introduction. And as I said, I want to look at Walter Martin to begin with. Walter Martin was fondly and respectfully known as the father of Christian cult apologetics. Two kinds of apologetics. One is philosophical apologetics. How do we go about it? What is it? But this is apologetics when we look at the world religions compared to the Bible. Many current professional and academic cult apologists credit him with their introduction to the field. He held four earned degrees, having received his doctorate from California Coast University in the field of comparative religions. Author of a dozen books, a half dozen booklets, many articles, he was known nationwide as the Bible Answer Man, host of one of the oldest and most popular nationally syndicated call-in radio programs. He was the founder and director of the Christian Research Institute, located in Southern California, which continues to provide cult apologetics information and to sponsor the ever-popular Bible Answer Man daily broadcast. So he really was looked at as the foremost expert on cults. Now, he wrote the book, The Kingdom of the Cults, which is, um, it's been around for a while. He wrote it in 1965, and as I said, it's still being updated a little bit as to numbers, um, but it still is the quintessential work. So let me just read what I have here. Since the first edition was published in 1965, Walter Martin's The Kingdom of the Cults has been the leading reference work on the major contemporary cult systems. With an emphasis on the active proselytizing cults, the kingdom of the cults is a crucial tool in the counterculture ministry and evangelism. Now, here's where it gets really interesting. Now, the cults that are listed in the kingdom of the cults are such cults as Jehovah Witnesses, Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, Christian Science, the Theosophical Society, Buddhism, the Baha'i Faith, the New Age cults, the Unification Church, Scientology, and others. However, Seventh-day Adventist is not among the list. However, there is in the back of every Every new edition of the Kingdom of the Cults, there is an appendix. And that's where he discusses the Seventh-day Adventist. And it's called the Puzzle of the Seventh-day Adventist, which is a very apropos title. So why did he not put it with the list? Well, there was an ongoing debate on whether or not they were actually a cult. Now, let me explain what a cult is, or try to, as it's becoming very blurred anymore. A cult is, and I'm going to give some definitions, but a cult is a, a uh, deeper level of a, of a false religion. So, even if someone isn't called... A cult. They still could be a false religion. 
but they have to fit into the category of a cult. Uh, again, what is interesting is I, I had this book in Bible college, and we had a class on apologetics and cults. It was really great. Uh, we were uh, divided up into teams, and we were given um, one of the cults to have to uh, study and then present to the class. Um, I was in the same class as my wife, who was not my wife at that time. I was... Uh, just a sophomore and she was a senior um, and yes I wanted to know about apologetics and, and cults but I thought also too it'd be a great way for me to be in with Darlene well uh, I had the group Mormonism and she had the group Jehovah Witnesses we did have a group that did the Seventh-day Adventists and almost today I wished I would have had that group so the question remains, is SDA a cult? If not, how should it be classified? That is the puzzle. That's why this is so interesting. Now, Walter Martin gives his opinion of whether they're a cult or not in the following paragraphs in 1957 in the Kingdom of the Cults in this appendix and at this point it's somewhat of a shock because he does not qualify them as a cult he's going to explain why in fact not only does he not put them in a cult the language he uses is very strong that in some instances they could be evangelical like us born again this is what I remember hearing when I went to Bible college about Seventh-day Adventists. Now, let's listen to his uh, assessment of them in this appendix. It is my conviction that one cannot be a true Jehovah's Witness, Mormon, Christian scientist, etc., and be a Christian in the biblical sense of the term. But it is perfectly possible to be a Seventh-day Adventist and be a true follower of Jesus Christ despite certain heterodox, that means opposite teaching of what's orthodox, heterodox concepts, which will be discussed. He goes on to say, now such Christians' leaders as Lewis Talbot, M.R. DeHaan, John R. Rice, Anthony Hokema, by the way, I have that emboldened and underlined because I really like Hokema, who wrote a book called The Four Major Cults, Christian Science, Jehovah Witnesses, Mormons, and Seventh-day Adventists. Great, great book. I, I used him when we did Mormonism and when we did Jehovah's Witnesses. So this is kind of an ongoing study that we have done over the years uh, in between studies, and uh, it's been very good. And if you're interested in the notes on Mormonism or Jehovah's Witnesses, let me know and I'll gladly get those for you. But he goes on to say, J.K. Van Balen, Herbert Byrd, and John R. Gerstner, now we know him, he was a professor of 
R.C. Sproul, and Phil Johnson have taken the position that Adventism is in fact a cult system. Whereas the late Donald Gray Barnhouse, myself, E. Shiler English, and quite a few others have concluded the opposite. He's going to give a little bit of an explanation in the video, so I don't want to have to uh, take up the time because we are going to be pressed for time here. Um, but he will give an explanation as to how he came to this. It was basically because uh, the, there were some Seventh-day Adventists that appeared to be moving away from the doctrines of Seventh-day Adventism, including the writings of Ellen White, who is the prophetess of the group. So he investigated them, talked to them, and that was his conclusion. But we'll see more about that. So what is a cult? Well, it's a little interesting. Even though you try to define it, it seemed to me years ago in Bible college it was clearly defined. But with this situation here with Seventh-day Adventism, it, it becomes a little blurry, but that's okay. So Martin's definition is a cult is any religious group which differs significantly in one or more respects as to belief or practice from those religious groups which are regarded as the normative expressions of religion in our total culture. So there is an orthodox, there is a normality, there is a general Christian group out there which may be made up of like the Roman Catholic Church, which we would not agree with in their assessment of salvation, but we talk about, is this a Christian nation? But then there is the smaller category of born-again believers. But there is, you know, we, we may not agree with it, we may not use it that way, but if you do read some things, you will find that there is a general Christian category but we are always talking about no true believers are christian anyway that's the idea so when a group is christian in a general sense but not against some of the major doctrines they are false religion and not a cult he goes on to say in addition a group of people gathered around a specific person's misinterpretation of the bible all right, here's another one. Hopefully, I like to give several definitions because sooner or later, one of them will click with us. Here's one. It is a group that deviates from orthodox biblical truths of the person and work of Christ, number one. Now, when we talk about the person and work of Christ, and you've probably heard me say this already, the person of Christ is deity. So if there's a group out there that doesn't believe in the deity of Jesus Christ, that pretty well puts them already from the get-go in the situation of a cult. That, that one can't be compromised. And the work of Christ is salvation through Christ's death. We believe it's by uh, faith alone in Christ alone. But there are some quote-unquote general Christian 
denominations that also add works to it. So for some reason, that doesn't seem to put them in a cult, but it puts them in a false religion. So these, uh, and let me finish. And number two, the authority of the Bible. So if anyone deviates from the authority of the Bible for its beliefs and behavior, and not a person or extra biblical revelation. So in other words, obviously we believe that we must get everything for our beliefs and behavior from the authority of the word. If there's a group out there that doesn't do that, but they get their beliefs from a person, a prophet, or from special revelation, now they are leaning towards the group that is a cult. But nevertheless, uh, we, we, it, it has always been, it has always been assessed with these categories and these aren't necessarily biblical categories. I mean, I mean, the word cult uh, is not described and defined for us in the Bible. So this is man trying to figure this out. And so the Roman Catholics were not known as a cult technically. Now, there's a lot of people that would argue with me, probably even in this room, that the Roman Catholic Church is a cult or is cultish, to which I would probably agree. But we're looking at these uh, academic definitions, which I'm headed towards, let's throw that out and let's find out whether they're a false religion with a false gospel or not. All right. Nevertheless, we would argue that the Roman Catholic Church, some would, uh, a cult or cultish as in the same regard to the Seventh-day Adventists. All right, now here's Phil Johnson's definition, which in a way he kind of started all this with me. I listened to one of his um, podcasts, or actually it was a, a class that he taught on Seventh-day Adventism. And I would uh, ask you if you're interested, listen to it on the internet. It's very, very good. Well, he has no problem calling the Seventh-day Adventist a cult. And here's the definition that he uses. A cult is an author, uh, author, authoritarian and an elitist sect who teach that salvation hinges on membership in their group. And yet they depart from one or more essential points in the ancient ecumenical creeds. So you see there's orthodoxy there. And with that definition, he would put them in a cult. Now, are they a cult or not? He calls them a cult. But notwithstanding, at this point, in the world of semantics, it doesn't matter if individuals regard the SDA as a cult or not. The question begs to be asked, are they a false religion with a false gospel? So in other words, he says, I'm not going to argue with people. They, some say they're a cult, some say they're not a cult, but a false religion, it's, it, in one sense, it's a moot point. He writes this. If you don't want to label them a cult, I'm not going to argue over terminologies. But I think that's a terribly misleading and useless point to make because whether you label Seventh-day Adventism cultish or not, the fact is that they are a dangerous and sub-Christian faction that steers people away from the simplicity of the true gospel. That is, 
on YouTube is Seventh-day Adventism, a cult by Dr. Phil Johnson. Well, I want to get to the video and I, because we're left with a little bit of a quandary here. We have, we have Walter Martin, who we respect very, very much, and he, he came out and said that he wasn't ready to place them in a cult. But the video that I'm about to show is toward the end of his life when he said that if, if the Seventh-day Adventists continue to go the way that they're going, they would have to be placed in a cult. Very interesting reversal. Now, a brief history, and I don't know how brief I can be, and I, I, I apologize, I don't want to confuse anyone. We are going to go back into detail, and that is, when we look at this, it began, it began with William Miller, the Millerites, when he predicted that the Lord would return in 1843 to 1844, okay? And we'll talk about this next week. So he went to Daniel chapter 8, verse 14, and there was a reference there about uh, 2,300 evenings and mornings, which he said are years. And he added those years to the time of Artaxerxes sending the Jews to rebuild Jerusalem to his present day. And he said, that's it. This is when the Lord's going to come. Well, we know the Lord did not come. And so it was a miscalculation. That's what he said. He, he was dumbfounded that the Lord did not come. And the followers were disappointed. But he said, I must have made an error in my calculation because I still believe it. Well, there was another man by the name of Samuel Snow, a Millerite leader. So he said, wait a second. I think I figured it out. Um, we, we need to predict the Lord's coming in 1844, and it should be in accordance with the Day of Atonement. That's what we do. So they're grasping at straws to predict when the Lord is coming. We know Scripture tells us not to even do that because no one knows, and yet we find them doing it. Well, once again, the Lord obviously did not come. The second miscalculation became known as the Great Disappointment, and many gave up on the Advent faith. Adventist, because of the advent of Christ coming. That's part of their name. Now, they're still trying to recuperate. Some people have left because they don't, they, they figured it out, but others have stuck around. And there were several men, Hiram Edson, Franklin Hahn, and a man by the name of Crozier, they met for prayer after this happened, wanting God's revelation to tell us what, what happened. And after walking through a field, Etchen received a revelation that depicted Christ, that he had only gone to the heavenly holy place, the heavenly tabernacle, but only the middle section, the holy place. He had not gone into, like they thought, the holy place. And you're scratching your head. Wow, where'd they get all this? So we'll pick this up next week in that. But 
The idea is, is that's where they messed up. When Christ, they say, does go to the Holy of Holies, that is when he's going to return. Well, this is how they did it. And by the way, this is what we see most of the time for those who make predictions and then the prediction doesn't turn out, the Lord does not return, and what happens is they say, oh, well, he came spiritually as an analogy. He, you know, somehow or other, they, they have to put some kind of spiritual twist on it to show that they were right, even though they were wrong. Well, one of the things that we find out is they put forth the idea that the holy place, and this is going to get confusing, so hang in there, that when Christ went to the holy place, it led to forgiveness of sins. Never mind that he died on the cross and said it is finished. But it went to the holy place in heaven, and this had to do with forgiveness of sins. But when he does go to the holy of holies, that is going to be the blotting out of sin if you are worthy. And so you see what's happening here, even though it uses the term forgiveness of sins, it doesn't mean your sins are blotted out. And they say they believe in faith. You look at the, at the Seventh-day Adventist 27 fundamental doctrines, and it will say that they believe in faith alone in Christ alone. But they're not telling you the truth because they believe in this, what's called investigative judgment. Again, it's a little bit hairy to try to understand. They will talk about it in the video. That's why I'm bringing it up. But again, he only went to the holy place for forgiveness of sins. He didn't go to the holy of holies for the blotting out of sins. And what has to happen before that, there has to be a scapegoat of our sins. And the scapegoat is Satan. Not Christ, but Satan. This is is probably one of the foremost doctrines of Seventh-day Adventism. There was also another man in 1846 by the name of Joseph Bates who believed in worshiping on the Sabbath, which is Saturday. And he wrote a pamphlet called The Seventh-day Sabbath, A Perpetual Sign. Now, he understood this from Revelation chapter 4 because he thought that the beast was the Roman Catholic Church, the papacy, and he said the papacy was the one that changed from worshiping on the Sabbath, Saturday, to the first day of the week, which is not true. We have that in the scriptures. Paul talks about that. Anyway, he said, whoever does not worship on the Sabbath is worshiping the beast, papacy, and will receive the mark of the beast. Now, what happens when you talk to Seventh-day Adventist people now? Well, some of them are hardcore. They're going to give you everything that Ellen White wrote. Some of them are claiming to be attached from there although they won't, they won't unattach. Uh, they, they, okay, 
Let me say that again. Let me say that right this time. Some of them claim to be unattached to Ellen White, and yet they still are attached. There's certain things that's going to happen in this video that this, this Seventh-day Adventist man will not admit. And, 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 and after watching it, I go, there you go. That's it. It's just like many of the other cults, like the Roman Catholics, when they came out with Vatican number two, there's a big change. We're Christian now. Except we didn't recant anything in the Council of Trent. There's just a new approach, new words. You've seen that in the uh, Mormon cult where they're always trying to say they're Christian. They will even twist their words to your ears when you talk to them about the deity of Christ, they will say that they are in agreement with that when they are clearly not. And I think that's what we have here with the Seventh-day Adventist. Now, let me quickly, I am way over time, so, uh, but I have to bring in Ellen G. White, right? Because this is the prophetess for the Seventh-day Adventist. This is the infallible final word. Well, she, at the age of 17, after becoming an Adventist, in 1844, she received her first vision from God, first revelation from God. And she started having more of these and was soon recognized as a true prophetess, meaning infallible. I mean, when we, go through, when we just went through the book of Kings... And every time we came to a prophet, what did we say? The same thing over and over. Thus says the Lord. That's what a prophet was. It wasn't his own idea. What he said was the words of God that were given to him. Well, she's, they claim that she was a true prophetess. In one of her visions, lo and behold, she sees the holy place and the holy of holies and she sees Jesus there, and she confirms by revelation what Edson said when he went across that field and he saw that vision and he thought, you know, the, the investigative judgment, the holy place and then the holy of holies. In 1847, she had a, another vision of the holy of holies. She's in the holy of holies where the Ark of the Covenant is, and she sees a halo of glory around, not necessarily the Ten Commandments, but the Fourth Commandment, to keep the Sabbath. And so she is now giving her divine revelation approval upon their Sabbath belief. One writes, almost every aspect of the belief and activity of the Seventh-day Adventists was encouraged or inspired by a, ver a vision or word from Mrs. White. That was, that was Mr. Hakamah. And then in their own doctrine, they put out an article or a little book called Questions on Doctrine. And this is what they said, that the gift of the spirit of prophecy is one of the identifying marks of the remnant church. They recognized that this gift was manifest in the life and ministry of Ellen G. White. 
So this sets it up for what we're going to take a look at here in the video. We may not get through all of the parts that I wanted to, but that's okay. So the, the first part is going to be Walter Martin explaining his previous assessment of the SDA, that he thought even some of them were evangelical. Sitting beside him is William Johnson, and that is not a typo. There are two S's in Johnson. He served as the editor of the Adventist Review, the weekly flagship magazine of Seventh-day Adventist Church. And he was also a trustee of the Ellen G. White estate, which is her writings. And the... Seventh-day Adventist Encyclopedia. So you could search these things out. I don't know why they didn't get rid of that. It might have been a good thing for them to do if they didn't want to get into all this trouble. But we're going to begin with then, in this video, uh, the first 10 minutes, Walter Martin is going to explain his previous assessment and why he's now having difficulty saying that they're a cult. Uh, we had a, all set of data, and we had a few missionaries throughout the 
and uh, Phoebe Amaroff, who we have both been started by uh, this session and is with us also in uh, Pennsylvania, or your headquarters, uh, some of the Pennsylvania business. Uh, I came out of the Depot Gym in 1966, uh, and Charlie Magazine uh, came out of the conclusion that uh, Seventh-day Adventists who acknowledge the things that their denomination would tell us had to be regenerate Christians and evangelicals and could not be classified as a cult. Uh, however, there were Adventists that were on the uh, other side of the fence, and we recognized them too. We spent the time down there going over their literature, uh, which was in a morass of contradictions uh, and materials that uh, could be juxtaposed back and forth, either cultic or non cultic, depending upon who wrote it. We had to go through that with a whole group of scholars and men from their publishing houses and theologians to sift through all the materials, and as a result of it, uh, I propounded a series of questions to them, and the series was uh, later put into the book, which you mentioned before, Questions on Doctrine. It was the first time that a non-Adventist scholar, an expert on cults, had gone to the Adventists, sat down with them, discussed their theology openly, frankly, and freely, and I believe to this day, the men I dealt with, with uh, the background we have already, and also with the fact that 
the seventh amendment of the nomination today, uh, which one I address my questions, responded quite differently than the denomination in 1956. Uh, in 1956, uh, Ruben Figueroa, who considered questions on doctrine and the dialogue, he said, to be the most important single contribution of his entire tenure as president. Ruben Figueroa began in his later life to deplore the fact that there was a strong movement within Seventh-day Adventism to undercut what they had worked so hard to establish in questions on doctrine. And uh, so I, after a number of academic ministers came to me, after I received literally hundreds and hundreds of letters, documents, boxes full of documents from all over the world, Australia, New Zealand, England, United States, you name it, stacked up, we had to go through, uh, with people doing research on the subject. And they're all telling the same story, these ministers and these people all over the world. They were saying, we believe questions on doctrine. We studied questions on doctrine. We presented our views in the light of questions on doctrine, and we were disfellowshipped. We were removed from the church. Uh, uh, I'm not painting houses, and I was a former teacher. I was doing this, and now I'm doing such and such. What, what went wrong? So I thought it was a good idea to ask the questions. What went wrong? So I addressed three questions to Neil Wilson. Uh, president of the General Conference. Mr. Wilson didn't have time to discuss it with me, so he referred me to somebody else who didn't have apparently the time to discuss it either, and they referred me to somebody else. By the time I did get a response, the first question, I asked three questions, three primary questions. I asked them, the question that I thought was tremendously important, which is, uh, do you still hold the questions on doctrine? And the answer was, yes. Same as uh, Mr. Johnson said. Uh, I thought, that's strange. Uh, all these people can't be wrong, or something's wrong in the communication system. Second question, do you regard the teaching of Alan G. Right. So interesting here, what we see is that at one point he was willing to stick up for the Seventh-day Adventists because of what they told him, but now things were changing. One of the things that were starting to change is those people who truly believed in just the, the questions on doctrine or the 27 fundamental beliefs were starting to get in trouble because they weren't upholding Ellen G. White. So, in other words, the denomination had already been created, 
through Ellen G. Uh, Ellen G. White. Um, these things that these other men were doing, may, maybe they were coming to Christ. Maybe they were understanding the questions and they saw themselves moving away. But you have all of this conflict. Well, I, I almost wish we could watch the whole thing. It's actually five episodes on this one video. We can't. And so we can't get into everything that they got into. And they did not get into every doctrine either. But this next part, um, they're going to talk about Ellen White. It, a lot of this goes around her because for the, she's the one who her writings were the ones that confirmed all of these bizarre beliefs which gave the SDA their special significance to the world. Move those doctrines away and they're not special anymore. And so they're, they're, they're going to ask... Uh, them about whether they think she is a prophetess. One of the problems is that she, they, they've discovered that she was also guilty of plagiarism, quite a bit of plagiarism. And so how can you say I received it from God when I got it from some other source? Anyway, uh, let's take a look. Here's what the Adventists believe. Everything James White says necessary 
to discreet his right authority has now been demonstrated. And I'll be interested to see what evidence you will accept personally as a Christian that will tell you that Mrs. White is a false prophet. What evidence would you accept? I think I would make my statement. The relationship to Jesus. The relationship to the cross. The relationship to the scripture. No, that's not the question. The question is, okay, what evidence would you accept as proof? Listen carefully. What evidence would you accept as proof that Mrs. White did indeed deceive, whether consciously or unconsciously, and was in fact a false prophet? What would prove it to you? Surely the scriptural text has to be the text. But we can't use scripture because she's the infallible interpreter. And if we use scripture, we've got to have some confidence in fact that the spirit of prophecy contradicts that. How can we use scripture? You are saying she's the infallible interpreter. And I'll be kind of glad that I quoted ten statements from the leaders that said it. I'm quoting the founding of the leaders. This book and I know which which uh, some men believes today are essentially worth it because you can find an equal, if not superior, number of quotations on the same subject from their own publishing houses, which disagree with it. Well then, please, I think I'm going to say the Dead Man's Church. I think I know that no, no other statements have the authority of the founding of the leaders. These are our statements of faith. This is what we expect people to refer to before accepting into the church. Could you repeat the question? Yeah. Could you ask that question? What would you accept as proof? If you were put in a courtroom context and I said to you, I'm going to preach some opposition, condemnation of scripture, that would prove it. You know, the bride standing there with the minister said that nothing could convince her. So you have, you have stepped up to me and you said scripture will do it. Hallelujah. Then, then let's look at scripture. Mrs. White says, and I quoted her before, in her whole consistent chain of revelation, Mrs. White said, it has been consistent and it has not contained any heresies. She said that. Mrs. White not only contained heresies, she contradicted the scripture. She thought that Jesus Christ was not the eternal God in human flesh, which was expunged from your publications after she changed her mind. But she claimed that's false doctrine. It is not. She said, indeed, Jesus is not original. I know that. I'm going to go into the what she changed before that. Check your commentary before they expunge it. You'll find it there. Mrs. White is quoted denying the deity of Jesus Christ. Well, I'm not saying she's a false prophet. No, I'm saying if we're going to go to Scripture to deny that Christ is eternal God, will at that time have classed her as a false prophet woman. I'll have to check out. Look at this. Look at this. So, uh, 
it, it was at this point that I began to realize, okay, I see they're not going to answer the question outright. And here, here is someone who has been a professor for 20 years. He's, he, uh, he is an, an editor for their magazine, the flagship magazine. And he doesn't even know what she said about the deity of Christ years ago. And he, he, he almost didn't want to admit it, that if he found that out, he would indeed think she was a false prophet at that time. Now she grew into a true prophet. But anyway, you, you heard that. Um, well, this does go on. And, and by the way, we're, we're into like the fourth and the fifth of the series. So it is getting, I'm not going to say heated. I, I think both of them are under control. I think Martin Walter is under control. But I think it's kind of been a little frustrating as it's been very congenial. But you've been getting these same kind of answers, not telling the truth. And well, I just believe what the, the 27 fundamental doctrines are. But what about the other things that the SDA has uh, written? So at this point, they're, go they're going to take a break, and they're going to have a question and answer. And there's a man who's going to question, uh, give a question and says, why can't the SDA just remove Ellen G. White's words from their beliefs and rely on Scripture alone? Okay, what if we were to say, okay, we can go with Ellen G. White and somebody like Calvin. 
So he kind of got caught in that, and uh, he, he doesn't seem to want to apply the same principle to Ellen G. White, and you can tell his, uh, his hesitancy. Now, this next excerpt is, is nine minutes, and it is going to involve the investigative judgment. Okay, so that's what we talked about, the vision that he went to the holy place, but not the holy of holies. Uh, she saw this also in a vision and confirmed what was said, and it became pure doctrine for this. But this also, this also backfires.
practical Christian education is there for me as a Christian from the 1844 meeting. It brings us into strength and misunderstanding of the Christian world and our evangelical Christians. Why don't we just drop the thing? What value is it? As a minister, I've never been able to find a single item of Christian value in that doctrine. And I want to follow it up with a quote from Colonels, too. Concerning spiritual gifts, when a number of employees spiritual gifts as faithful stewards of God's very grace, here's the result. The church is protected from the destructive influence of false doctrine, grows with a growth that is from God, and is built up in faith and love. And seems to me the 1844 investigative judgment is absolutely necessary to have this denomination. Well, it depends on, on the way it's set forth. If it's set forth in a perfectionistic mode, it surely will not build up. But, but if, if it is set forth in a scriptural mode, and the scriptures, remember, call us to exhaustion according to works, with Christ as our Savior and as our mediator and judge, then there is much of value for us in that. The uh, one thing I want to follow up on that, I was just thinking of the fact that uh, when you say that it's not a perfectionistic mode, the, in the very first program I read to you, what Alan G. White herself taught in the Great Council, okay? This is the investigative judgment they're talking about. It's one that is enshrined in the ancient creeds of Christendom. It is not to our scripture, Old Testament and New Testament, but nevertheless, it is a document that has largely faded out of the Christian thought today. There is some important aspects to, for Christians to, to be reminded of in this doctrine of the judgment. The doctrine of the judgment, as I see it, is a doctrine that calls us to, to words, good old-fashioned words, I think that's still meaningful, words like loyalty, loyalty to my master. The doctrine of the judgment tells me that Christ is my hope, he is my salvation, his justification is my hope, but because I am his, I must now live for him. He is my Lord, but she sends his loyalty towards the list of wealth, and she said it, I believe. Said in 1844, our great high priest stands in the Holy of Holies and there appears in the presence of God to engage in the last act of the administration in behalf of man to perform the work of investigative judgment. So your sins have been forgiven, he says, Mrs. White. But in 1844, they are remaining there and they have not been brought out. And they must then be brought out until the conclusion of the investigative judgment. Or let me, or let me follow it up, Walter, if you're going to the or the encyclopedia, sorry, but the encyclopedia on that very topic pointed back to the great controversy where she said, all who have ever taken upon himself the name of Christ must pass its searching scrutiny, both the living and the dead are to be judged out of those things which were written 
Go ahead and stop it there. So that was a very telling when, you know, he used the word forgiveness, uh, used all of those other words that we would use, uh, receive Christ as your savior, but are your sins blotted out? No, because they have to, um, they have to keep their salvation. So in other words, they, they, they gain salvation by faith, but they must keep their salvation by works. Otherwise, it will be blotted out. Well, um, this last section, uh, 135, 17, uh, and 14, 142, seven minutes. This is where um, John Ankerberg uh, asked Walter Martin, what do you think about today? This is what you thought back then. What are your thoughts now? Now, I do have a condensed version of it. And he says, I fear that if the Seventh-day Adventists continue to progress at this rate, not letting go, and excommunicating people who question these things, then the classification of a cult can't possibly miss being reapplied. Walter Martin. And uh, gentlemen, I'm coming to you this week to ask 
great power and glory and human influence their denomination. So much so that there is no way to control the publishing houses in terms of what they print. We've been sitting here with uh, our brother and we have seen him quote a publication and we quote a publication. And they both came from Seventh-day Adventist publishing houses. We have seen that there are people out there talking in high levels of Adventism, even in the Sabbath quarterly. Things which themselves are the antithesis of questions and doctrine. I fear that if they continue to progress at this rate, that the classification of the cult can't possibly miss being reapplied to Seventh-day Adventism because once you have an interpreter of Scripture, a final court of appeal that tells you what Scripture means, as soon as you judge scripture by that, as soon as you have someone who has made doctrinal errors in the past, even on the deity of Christ, and the, the doctrine of the atonement, and other things, and that person is raised to that position of authority, you have polarization around that person. And I can give you 20 quotations right now from high Adventist sources and publications, all stating these tremendously overblown views about the Lord. Views that I might add that she herself, in certain sections, repudiated. Okay, right. So <clears throat> he basically said that, yeah, the way that it's going, he's thinking that it should be reapplied. And there are those who think it should have never been taken away. There are those who have pretty well seen through this from the very beginning. And it's as if some of the individuals that are becoming evangelical are trying to change this big work of this denomination. It doesn't work that way. It's the denomination that changes. And they won't change for these individuals. Just like the Roman Catholics, uh, Vatican II, we're changing. Oh, no, you're not. They haven't recanted on any of the Council of Trent's anathemas to anyone who believes in justification by faith alone. Nothing has changed, just their presentation. So I want to say that we'll, we'll go back into the history. We'll look a bit, little bit more in detail, try to understand some of these things, and then we'll go into doctrine. There, there are a number of doctrines that we have to look at, and uh, we'll also be looking at Ellen G. White. But for tonight, in conclusion, in the kingdom of the cults, Walter Martin prophetically, might have been a better word than that, prophetically warned that the day would come when Christians would be unable and unwilling to scale the language barrier. Today, as never before, cultists of all stripes are using Christian terminology while pouring their own meanings into the words, in the process sometimes fooling even conservative evangelical leaders. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time. Father, we don't want to offend anyone, but we, don't, we do want to uphold the truth in the scriptures. And that should be everyone's desire, no matter what denomination. So, Father, we just ask in these coming weeks, you would give us wisdom, understanding. And, Father, we, we might even learn some things that would help us when we witness speaking the truth in love. 
and we'll thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen.